So, how do we get AI right? Well, we need the right volume of data, the software to train it, and massive compute power, or... Another one bites the dust. Are you ready? Hey, are you ready for this? Are you hanging on the edge of your seat? But with HPE GreenLake, we get access to supercomputing to power AI at the scale we need, helping generate better insights. Nice teamwork, guys. Search HPE GreenLake. This is episode 110 of the Secret Library podcast. The theme this week is difficult characters and sticky situations, and we have two interviews to explore both of those topics together. I'm really excited to have both Eden Lepucky and Jim Butcher on the show this week. So I hope you'll really enjoy those conversations. Before we get to the interviews, um, just a couple of announcements. One is that we have decided to push the start date for the next round of the Coffee Shop Writers Group to early October. So there will be another enrollment opening in September, and then the course will start in October. If you would like to be notified when the next round of the Coffee Shop Writers Group opens, you can go to caroline.ahue.com slash coffee shop. And I want to wish all of our Canadian and American listeners a happy holiday week. We have both Canada Day and Independence Day this week, so hopefully you've got some time set aside to work on your writing during the holidays. And hope you enjoyed a little bit of extra, extra time to yourself this week. So with that said, um, we will get on to the interviews. My first guest this week on the show is Eden Lepucky, who is the author of the novella, If You're Not Yet Like Me, as well as the novels California and Woman Number 17. California debuted at number three on the New York Times bestsellers list and was a number one bestseller on the Los Angeles Times and San Francisco Chronicle bestsellers lists. California was a fall 2014 selection of Barnes & Noble's Discover Great New Writers program. And if you want to listen to Eden's previous episode, you can learn why Eden and Stephen Colbert are now besties. Woman Number 17, her latest novel, received rave reviews from the Washington Post, New York Times, and the San Francisco Chronicle, among other publications, and was number three on Entertainment Weekly's must list. It was named a Best Book of the Year by the Washington Post, the San Francisco Chronicle, Pop Sugar, and The Main Edge. Eden is a graduate of Oberlin College and the University of Iowa's Writers Workshop. Her fiction and nonfiction have been published in Esquire, Narrative Magazine, The New York Times, The Cut, and McSweeney's, among others. The Los Angeles Times named her a face to watch for 2014. She's also a contributing editor to The Millions and the founder of Writing Workshops Los Angeles. It is a real treat to have Eden back on and having read Woman Number 17, um, I knew we had to talk about tricky characters. Eden spoke at the LA Times Festival of Books about how much she loves writing difficult characters and I think that her love of exploring people's attributes and qualities that maybe aren't the first ones you would want to share if they were true of yourself um, provides tremendous freedom and makes her fiction really delightful to read. So I knew I had to have her on to talk about exploring the kind of shadow side of characters a bit more and what that can do for your writing. So I know you'll really enjoy my interview with Eden Lepucky. Here we go. Hi. So um, we're doing another episode similar to when Cecil Castellucci was on. I've got, I wonder if I have an a LA author 
I just want them to come over to my house. So thankfully, since I've known Eden LaPucky for over 10 years at this point. Uh, at least, I feel like. No, yeah, probably not at least. I don't know. It a might long be. time. I mean, I've lived in LA for 12 years, so it might be like more like 11. Yeah. Wow. So I figured it was safe to have her over to the house. <laughs> I'm excited. So anyway, so we're flying with no net. So if you hear background noise, if you hear anything, it's because we literally only have one track of audio. So that is what we're doing. Um, and I wanted to have Eden over. I had this idea when I saw her speak on a panel at the LA Times Festival of Books about difficult characters. And she's sort of I, I wish I could show a video clip of her reaction to this being brought up at the panel. She like lit up like a little light bulb and was like, yes. So I really wanted to talk about this. And so I want to dive into that. But part of the other thing was, I know on paper, maybe the characters in Woman Number 17 seem difficult, but I was really in love with them. So they're not I think there's a difference, and maybe we can explore this, between difficult characters and unlikable characters and all of the all of the kind of stuff with that. But maybe you can give us a little rundown about woman number 17 to start, and then we can go from there. Sure. Uh, by the way, guys, for visual, Caroline and I are like two inches apart as we speak. It's very intimate. It's very <laughs> romantic. We're, our eyes are like four inches apart as we're speaking because we're on either side of the same microphone. Maybe it's we'll take funny. a picture we and totally post should. it because it's very funny. <laughs> um, so Woman Number 17 is my second novel. It's, you know, it's sort of hard to pitch it whenever I have an, you know, people want the elevator pitch. I always say it's about women and their problems. <laughs> um, but the longer pitch, if the elevator ride is slightly longer, is that it's about two women, a woman named Lady, who is in her early 40s, and she's recently kicked out her husband, Carl, out of their Hollywood mansion, that Hollywood Hills mansion that he bought her. Um, and she has two sons, an 18-year-old son named Seth, who doesn't speak and never has, and a two, two-year-old son named Devin, who is her and Carl's child. Um, and at the opening of the novel she is looking for a nanny because she's now on her own in this recent separation trial separation and she is on deadline to write a memoir about raising Seth that's supposed to be like a triumphant feel-good parenting memoir memoir about having a child with a disability um but Lady's kind of a fucked up person she doesn't speak to her mother she doesn't know where Seth's father is, and she's really just messed up about it. And she's always had a hard time accepting her child's disability. Um, so she hires a nanny, and in comes Esther, who goes by S in the novel. And they kind of immediately connect, um, and they have a nice rapport. And it turns out, though, that Esther isn't exactly whom she seems. She herself has mommy issues, and she is in the midst of doing a and uh, a kind of performance piece. She's an artist and she is pretending to be someone she isn't. She's enacting or impersonating or, I don't know, inhabiting the 23-year-old version of her own mother who is currently an alcoholic living in Los Angeles. So it's a story of these two women and what happens to them over the two months that they're, they know each other. Um, and it's about their, their worlds kind of colliding and their stories overlapping. Is it only two months? That's amazing. You know, what's funny is that people like to point out that my two books are very different. California Woman Number 17, because California is this post-apocalyptic novel. But in fact, they're very similar structurally. They are they have two characters shifting perspective and they to both take place over like a six-week period. 
Yeah, just very different versions of Los Angeles. Yeah, exactly. Maybe emotionally similar, but yeah. not um, sort of socioeconomically similar. Yeah, very different in that regard. So I think something that stands out about the book and something that you've said before about writing Lady is that it was very interesting to write a character who was not a great mom, that was really having trouble with the role of being a mom, particularly being a role of a mom of a kid who is a mute and there's no there's no scientific reason for it. He doesn't he isn't missing anything. There's he wasn't like a malformed voice box or anything. He just never started speaking. And she's just not great about it. And I think that there are interesting things when writing characters that I find I get very protective of my characters. And my problem is I don't do enough terrible things to them. And in reading this book, I was like, oh my God, I'm so, I'm such a wuss about putting my characters through experiences. So I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about the development of Lady, and then we can talk about S. Um, so Lady, I loved writing Lady. She, uh, f- for some reason, there's this kind of first person narrator that I like immediately gravitate towards and I'm trying I'm actually writing a third person narrative novel right now but I think anytime I start writing a first person I get into this sort of like elevated barbed damaged person that's and like that's kind of funny and can like throw down with like criticizing everyone but can't really see themselves and is very interested in like promoting a certain kind of story about themselves I just find this kind of person really intriguing um so that's how she started. I didn't really set out to write her, you know, as a bad mother, but because really we can investigate what that means to be a bad mother. But I did want to write someone who was struggled a lot with parenting and had a lot of trauma and she wasn't really dealing with it properly. So I really wanted to write about someone who was a sing- I wanted to write a single mother who had no family, who, you know, her father's dead, her mother did something cruel to her and she hasn't gotten over it. Um, and then the father left and she's raising a child alone and she's very isolated. And then what would happen if that child didn't turn out to be just like all the other children at the playground? And I think we so often see these stories of these like heroic parents. And of course, I wanted to see the flip side of that of like, what if you didn't do the right thing? And I actually don't think she's a bad mother. Like she does bad things and she doesn't always do the right thing or make the right choice. But I felt very strongly that she loved both of her children, even if that love was kind of deranged at times. Like, I do feel like she truly cares about them. And so I am protective of her in that way. Like, when people write mean things on Goodreads about how she's like a horrible witch, I'm like, oh, but she's just trying her best. (laughs) Yeah, I felt that way too. I didn't, because I think I, before reading it, had this sense that she was going to be sort of monstrous, maybe not in the sort of Gabriel talent yeah. kind of over the top monster parent, but that that she was going to be a lot worse than she was. And instead, she kind of struck me a little bit like the mom in Lady Bird in the film a little oh, bit. I love that movie. Which I loved. And, and I actually identified more with the with Laurie Metcalf's character yeah. than Lady Bird. I think just because of my age. Then you're, then you're twin. Um, and then my twin, I do look just like that. I know, it's bizarre. Actress, but yeah. she's more beautiful and much younger. No, she just, I'm going to play her mother in the next movie. Oh my God, that would be <laughs> that would totally work. It would totally work. I could be like the teen mom. 
You're like the separated. I'm surprised they haven't done that online. Like the separated, like twins separated, like put the photo up, how they do that with people. Anyway, that's a total sidebar. We can put some photos in the show notes um, so everyone can see what we're talking about. But um, I, I think that with her as the mom, it was like she's trying to establish this connection mm-hmm. and she's reaching out to connect in a like a continual way but she's kind of grasping and she's kind of got claws as she's grasping (laughs) because she's freaked out and she used to have this life with her older son Seth where they were alone where Mm -hmm. it almost feels like borderline inappropriate because it was so intimate and there's nobody else there yeah um and she's feeling this sense of loss that he's growing up he's interested in other people He's flirting. Yeah, and they're all good things, arguably. Um, I think what I feel when some readers judge her so harshly, because I think it's fine to be like, oh, lady, what are you doing? Like, don't do that. I think that's fine. And to be angry at some of her choices, that makes sense too. Um, But I think sometimes what's missing from that conversation is the pain that she has when the novel begins and also an understanding of like, I thought a lot about her class anxiety because she was basically struggling. You know, she worked at a dentist's office, a doctor, he was a manager of a medical office, raising him by herself. Her son was on scholarship at like a school for children who were alternative learners. Um, and then she's whisked into this world where she's married to a producer and she lives in this beautiful house and she suddenly has a new kid who can speak and everything looks perfect. And I think there's a real struggle for her to be like, to understand who am I? And I don't think she ever knew Um, And now it's just gotten really much worse. Yeah, I think the thing that's interesting is, and I've talked to a number of people at this point, when this comes to mind is Tom Rockman talking about um, the Italian teacher and how that, it seems to go back to parent-child relationships a lot, which isn't surprising given that they're so significant. But him talking about how he was able to explore his anxiety about potentially becoming a father by Mm -hmm. writing about, a, a really dysfunctional father yeah. who's very charismatic and not ultimately like a totally horrible person, but he's just an incompetent parent yeah. in that book. And that people kind of get to explore sort of parallel worlds or ways in which they think they might go wrong or what might happen. And as you're a mom, not only a mom, but a mom with a podcast called Mom Rage, <laughs> which I the phrase comes up in the book even. And I was I just know. like, were you thinking about this podcast when you wrote that book? Um, <clears throat> how did you get a chance to kind of play with that in a way by writing Lady? I think both of my books and the one I'm working on now definitely tap into, not necessarily, they are anxieties. They're also sort of like thought experiments, right? Because I feel like I live a pretty staid life. I feel like I'm a solid mom. (laughs) But there is definitely a side of me that wonders like, well, what if I did have a child with a disability? What if I did have a child who couldn't speak? Would I like rise to the occasion and become his advocate, her advocate, and be able to see him or her fully in all the ways that they are. Um, And, you know, in my darkest moments, I think, no, I would fail at that. And I think every parent to some degree has that moment. (coughs) Um, To answer your first question way back where you said that you kind of have trouble putting your characters in harm's way, it's interesting because I feel like I have to do that to make make things like I need plot in order for the book to kind of sustain itself otherwise I'm not really sure what will what to do um and I'm actually trying now in my new book to do that less 
while still trying to like maintain the propulsive nature, which is what I love about reading most of the time, but without like just making people behave badly all the time. Yeah, I think that's the thing is that I am not saying that this is an effective choice for me. I mean, (laughs) I've written a draft of my current novel in which she went from, my main character went from like one to another to another like eating establishments, like a coffee shop, like because I was like dreading putting her in a conversation that she didn't want to have. And all those scenes are going to get cut, but I'm just like, could I get her out of the goddamn coffee shop and just get her in there? But I'm just like, ooh, like, it, it, but it's like, that's part of it. I think that's experience of like, ooh, what's going to happen, which yeah. is definitely present throughout your book where yeah. I'm like, oh my God, you're like kind of watching it. Like, it feels very much like a dark comedy movie where you're like, ooh, this is going to go yeah, way this wrong. Gonna go this is going to go so wrong. And it's so satisfying to kind of watch it knowing like, oh no, oh no. And, and I felt equally charmed by both Lady and S. And maybe we can talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about S too, because she's sort of working out the mommy issue in that I feel like she's more invested in understanding her mother and in that Lady is has a mother who really hurt her and she sort of rejects her out of hand. And Lady's pattern is kind of to cut people off. Yes, totally. Whereas um well, actually, she has an interesting thing where she tends to cut women off, mm-hmm. whereby men seem to cut her off. So it, it's yeah. sort of like her mm. kicking Carl out is sort of a way to reestablish the balance in a way yeah. for herself. But for S, she is hurt by a relationship that doesn't work out. She feels like she's done an art project that isn't received by the world in the way that she yeah. wants it to be. It's a little immature. I mean, she just got out of Berkeley she's like trying a little too hard and so she really wants to do something like profound Mm -hmm. with a capital P and um so she does this but her main impulse is to become her mother and Mm -hmm. to sort of understand why her mother is that way and she sort of believes that there's some sort of advantage to being like her mother her mother doesn't care what anyone thinks when she talks her Mm -hmm. mother doesn't apologize her mother just blabs whatever it is in her brain and there's something intoxicating about that so how was it to create that concept did you always know that's what was going to happen no I mean Esther Esther was actually much more difficult for me to write one I mean there were some elements that came I don't want to say naturally but I could tap into them like I was interested in her artistic inquiry and I feel like in some ways it mirrored my own especially at that age when you are thinking like this art is going to enlighten me or it's going to shed light on who I am and that seems like something that somebody who's just out of college is really invested in and I liked writing about that and I liked exploring what she was going to do next. Um, I wanted to make sure that her relationship with her mother was not one note. Like, I didn't want to just be like this cruel alcoholic mother. Because I thought, if your mother is really like that, then it's not quite as compelling. And you might not be compelled to understand her. At the same time, most of the people I know who have troubling mothers, you will ha- they will say to you, she was a good mother to me in a lot of ways. And I feel like that's the tension that's really interesting is when you have a dysfunctional relationship and there's love there. It's not as if there's no love there and there's not as if there isn't a connection despite all of the other problems. So I really wanted to tap into those that dual idea of like good and bad within this relationship. Um, and yeah, I think the problem with Esther is she doesn't know who she is and she's only, she's so young. She's 22, 23. Um, and... I think her kind of difficult element is that she really is using art 
to understand herself, but in the process, she's like pulling one over on all these people and she's using them. And that's what's really icky about it. And I don't think she quite gets that or it takes her the book to figure it out. Um, so she was difficult for me just because she wasn't like me in terms of her. Like, <coughs> she's so kind of reckless in an artistic way, not reckless in the way that lady is. I think when S is lady's age, she will be far healthier than lady is. And I always say that's because S has a dad who's there. And even if S's dad is sort of unquestioning in some ways and he shouldn't be, he's always going to support her. And that's what's important, I feel like. And Lady never had that. Yeah, I think that was really interesting, too, is it seems like the thing that's the most different between Lady and Esther is that there is a dad and he is accepting and he is even that is confusing to her. It's like it's reassuring, but it's at times suffocating and infuriating to her. And it's it's almost as if she has to separate herself in a way that Lady was kind of kicked out and forced to become separate, almost like she was dumped in a bucket of cold water mm-hmm. by her father dying versus S has to make that choice for herself, yeah. how much, she's going to separate. It's much more intentional. And I think what allows me to like have my characters go to those conversations, those conflicts is like, I don't really know who they are at the beginning. I have a sense of their voice. I have a sense of some kind of premise, but it's through like the conflict and the action that I start to really discover who they are. And so I'm like, I'm going, I'm like careening towards them because I want to know. And I, I was excited by this book in terms of seeing how they, their stories sort of echo one another's and mimic each other's. And then at what points do they diverge? Cause I feel like the, where they diverge is just as interesting as where they converge. Yeah, I mean, that was that was something I wanted to get into. It's like, okay, so we've got a good sense of who these people are and we're exploring all of that. But I want to talk about, a little bit about craft since I know that you can. I love to talk about craft. I know you do. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if people know. We probably talked about this in the first episode, but Eden was my first writing teacher in Los Angeles. Mm. And she broke me of my... <laughs> I just broke you, period. No, she did not break me, period. But broke me of my, like, Caroline, don't you think this sentence is just a wee bit long? Be like, this is a little abstract, Caroline. It's going on for quite oh, some I time. I love that novel you were working on. I know. Well, the new one is, it has elements of okay, that. Good. But um, yeah, so it, they, they were very long. It was like, stop reading Proust and start <laughs> reading Hemingway, please. Um, <laughs> Meet in the middle. <laughs> I know, exactly. So I think for people listening who are wanting to have you know, add complexity or looking to Mm. build characters. If we can dive into how these people were created and what, um, what you were thinking about as you were writing them sort of from a craft perspective, I think that would be really helpful. Um, let's see. Well, I will say that first off, when I think about character, it's almost like I'm envisioning like a, imagine like a huge, a big mural on the side of a building and then a tiny peephole in one random part of the mural. My story is the people, meaning that their lives and their complexity is so beyond the scope of whatever I'm working on. And I hate reading a book that feels like as soon as you close it or as soon as you get out of a scene, the characters kind of dissolve. I want them to really feel real. And I almost wonder sometimes if maybe my characters feel too difficult for some people because they feel almost 
like that's what people are like. That's what I want to say. Like if I got into your subconscious, man, it would be a really messy place. And all those thoughts you're having that you don't say out loud, those are unlikable. <laughs> so sometimes I feel like that's why I get that from certain readers. And maybe that's me just make trying to make myself feel better. But I definitely had this notion of characters. They existed before the story began and they will continue to exist when the story ends. Um, so there's sort of have this kind of ghostly presence in my mind even now. Um, I don't do a ton of like preparatory work beyond kind of just journaling, sort of thinking like, this is the idea that I had. This is the kind of person I'm thinking about. This is where they are when the book opens. And I might like start to throw in one or two lines like from their voice as I'm writing it out. Um, but I don't do any other kind of exercises like what's in their purse or anything like that. Um, I just kind of start. And the first scene, the first thing I wrote for woman number 17 is actually the second, the first paragraph of the second chapter, which is starts with, I wasn't born with the name lady. And that was just kind of an exercise I did in my, I think I started it in a class, like while my students were doing an exercise. And then later I took it and was kind of like fiddling with it. But because that paragraph is exists in a kind of timeless place. It's like her remembering her mother calling her lady for the first time. I was like, okay, I actually want to start the book in the present. I want to be in this present world where the conflicts are going to emerge. So I just plopped her into her house. I knew she had just asked her husband to leave. And I knew she had two sons, one of whom didn't speak. Um, I gave her a babysitter just to like have something to do because I wanted something to work against. And immediately when S got on the page, she was weird. I was like, something's going on with her. These two have, often when I'm writing two people and a character and I don't exactly know what's going to happen, I can get them just kind of like going. And they had a real energy between them. And so I thought, okay, something is going on with this babysitter. Why is she being so weird? And somewhere along the line, I decided that she was drunk, but Lady didn't know it and the reader didn't know it yet. Um... I tend to find that it's sort of a combination of writing scenes, putting people in uncomfortable situations or having them do something extraordinary that you as a reader recognize that this isn't exactly what they would do every other day. And also really, I love flashbacks and I have to cut usually a lot of them, but kind of in combination of thinking about how the past has informed the present. So with Lady, for instance, there's a lot about these moments when she realized that Seth had a disability that he would never, you know, when she first you know, when he, when she really thought about how he wasn't going to speak and the kind of dawning realization of that and the moments that led up to Seth's father, Marco leaving, like these are the moments of trauma that she keeps coming back to. And with S, it ended up being a lot more about her art and like exploring the art project that like led her to this one and her boyfriend that dumped her unceremoniously. Those, those sort of moments informing her character. Yeah. I think the thing that, that I'm always struggling with is how much you need to know that's happening outside of the scene in order for the scene to work. Because there are things, because you're always trying to write, whenever whenever I think about dialogue, I always think about Chaz Palminteri in um, Bullets Over Broadway, yelling at um, John Cusack and saying, you don't write how people talk. Like, <laughs> <clears throat> go shoot a rack, I'll fix the scene. But um about his play. But so I'm always trying to, people don't say, well, I'm upset with you because my mother was a terrible mother and I feel very abandoned and my father died. Is it like, you don't get that kind of explanation, but at some stage you need to know that lady's father died and you need to know that 
S has a mother who's an alcoholic, but how do you introduce that without saying she had a mother who was an alcoholic, <laughs> you know? And so I'm, I'm always interested in ways that you, you know, how much of the mural do you know at any given point or how much do you, at what stages do you figure this out? You start writing and say, oh, there's this going on, but maybe do I need to think about this a little more before I readdress this scene? I'm just interested in yeah. that tension. Uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, I usually am only a few scenes ahead of myself in terms of what I know. Um, I try as hard as I can to think about the reader or what kind of reader I am, where I'm like, what is the reader itching to know? Because I find a lot of books, and maybe I just have less patience than other readers. I'm like, oh, this is really beautiful. Thanks for masturbating for us. Like, I don't want the like move backwards unless I feel like it is going to, the reader at that moment is going to have the question regarding that issue. Um, I do in scene tend to be a little bit freewheeling in terms of like I just let people speak always keeping in mind that they're not going to say exactly what they mean and just kind of like moving towards where the where the like energy is like oh I'm getting you know I feel a buzz between these characters I feel somebody withholding and like really kind of hone into the into it but it's so intuitive that I don't even know how to really talk about it um so there's that combined with a more intentional working of like writing summary and I don't like set, sit down and be like and now I'm going to write summary but I think there is a way that you can weave in that important exposition within the scene and it's sometimes it helps for me just to kind of think about how I'm moving within time registers so I'm like in the scene you know I'm with I'm with Lady and S in that very first scene that you see in the book and I in the scene I need asked to do something so I have her just like look around the room and there's a photograph this actually is how it happened she sees a photograph and then I'm like oh I'm going to describe the photograph so I described the photograph and I had a really good time describing the photograph and I was like shit this book has art in it and I have lady suddenly say oh this is a photograph from my sister my sister-in-law who's a famous she doesn't say she just mentioned so this is a so then suddenly I knew that the babysitter was an artist because she took interest in the art and I knew that suddenly there's a famous photographer's sister-in-law and suddenly the plot kind of emerges but once I'm in action for too long I can feel like almost like in my body that I need to go up a little bit out of that moment by moment and do some expository work weaving it in does this make any sense yeah it actually really <laughs> does it's fun it feels a little bit like um almost like a detective process <laughs> totally where you're like I almost, I mean, I have, a, I'm a big fan of stakeouts and this concept and it's like, I knew that about you. <laughs> yeah, I love them. But it's like, you're, you're, it's almost like I can picture you in, if this was a movie about a writer, you know, creating a story that you're sort of with your binoculars looking in the window yeah. and you see these two people interacting and you're like, who are these people? Exactly. And it's you're so spying much. on them. And yeah. then you're sort of watching them start to interact and going like, why are they doing this? Oh, almost as if you're spying on actual people going about their lives yeah it definitely has a voyeuristic quality and it has this it has to per maintain a dismo dis like there has to discovery has to be maintained maintained for me to want to be interested in it otherwise i'm like who cares <laughs> yeah like chop it it's a short story yeah or um yeah i mean there has to be more and there has to be 
things that you're opening up. There's almost like a little choose your own adventure element. Like she's going to look around the room. She's found something. Oh, we're going to open it? it up. And what I think is really neat. I mean, I'm very craft oriented and I love to talk about like, now we need to switch time registers. But there is almost a mystic quality to writing that if you have done it, if you the, the more you do it and the more you kind of open up that intuitive quality in your in yourself as you're working, then things, as Flannery O'Connor says, start to accrue meaning. So you might end up cutting the photograph or you might listen to that and realize that that's actually what this book is all about. It's all about seeing. It's all about what's beyond the frame. It's all about controlling the narrative, controlling the lens. So I felt like sometimes these weird things would keep repeating, these motifs that I did not even intend to repeat, but I'm kind of just like so in the in the world of the book that that stuff is kind of happening on this almost mystical level. I don't usually, I'm not usually so woo woo, but I really, I do feel that if you're really open to the work, the work will kind of lead you. Yeah, I think so. You're making a terrible, unhappy face with what you said, <laughs> but she's like, oh, I can't believe I said that. But I agree. I mean, I think that I'm having this weird experience right now where, which can only be described as woo woo, where, and I've talked about it a little bit on the show, where I've written like about half of my novel in mm-hmm. third person. And then got a little bit stuck. Then realized that the motivation, there's a lot of, about a character's relationship with her dad. And I realized that the motivations should be flipped. Like uh. that the, the daughter's motivation is actually the father's and vice versa. Oh. So I'm like, well, shit. So I have to, <laughs> so there's Damn that it. issue. And then I was at a yoga class, lying on yoga mat, and this voice in my brain goes, it's supposed to be in first person. And I was like, oh, God damn it. And that shut me down for like two months. And I went back to it while I was traveling this past week and I've been trying to write in first and it is molasses but Mm. this stuff is coming out of it that I know is worthwhile yeah so given that you wrote woman number 17 in first two different first persons which is really interesting between the two I have another question about that, but we'll come back to it. Um, And now you're writing your third novel in third. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how the character construction feels different between those two ways of doing things. I tend to gravitate towards first person. There's something about hearing somebody's voice and looking at how they kind of weave the story that is so like magnetic to me. Um, When I'm writing first person, I'm so concerned about notions of storytelling like this is how this person wants you to see them and this is how you're going to see around them and that's like something really sexy to me I don't think all first persons need to do that but like that's what I like about a first person and I also love a retrospective first person where it's like you get that almost palimpsest of perspectives like this is how I saw it in the moment this is how I saw it five years later this is how I see it now and the reader has the opportunity to see all of those points of view together I think it's so beautiful Third person, I mean, I tend to like a close third person or a very omniscient third person. So what I mean by close is like you really feel like you're inside the character's head. It's almost like first, but it isn't. So it's like what James Wood calls free and direct speech, where it's like it start, it mimics some of the, the language that, the, that a first person narrator would use. But there's just, there's just like this slight distance that gives this kind of flexibility to it. Um... And it is a little bit more nimble sometimes than the first person, where sometimes first person, I feel like you can feel really yoked to the person and their problems and their voice. Um, I also like a third person that rises up and has kind of like an omniscient godlike. I feel like we need more books like that that more feel like a 19th century novel. Um, 
that's all to say though my new book I definitely was like I feel like you know California was in third person this one is first this is third person again but there's more characters than two people so I needed the third person to be able to feel like I could believably go into all these different voices and I am much less concerned with how the characters are thinking of their own narrative yeah that makes sense I mean I was I got this image as you were talking that to me the sort of way that I characterize the different ones is the different perspectives is like if omniscient if you think about it like a film if omniscient is like the camera is way up above mm-hmm. and you see the people interacting below and then a close third, which is what I tend to gravitate towards writing yeah. is like, there's somebody with a steady cam right behind the character following yeah. them yeah. versus first they are the camera. They are the camera. And, and you kind of are getting inside of their head along with it. Even if I think of close third as hanging with one person, but that, yeah, like what you're able to see, what your limits are, and how much of the character you have to know. I think you have to know them well either way. Mm-hmm. But to me, there is a difference. Like the, um, I think this the issue that I'm having right now writing first is that my character sounds like a close third narrator trapped in a human's body. <laughs> Which is, you know, I'm going to have to break her out of that because nobody talks like that. Yeah, you need to, I feel like they're, you have to kind of lean into voice a little bit more strongly with first. I do think sometimes with my students, the third person, the psychic distance, you know, between the narration and the character is too, it's too much. Like I always rib people for having seeing verbs in third, close third person, which is like, I saw the tree rather than just describing the tree. And it's assumed that the character sees it. And I think sometimes in third person, we tend to have just a little too much distance. But yeah, I think I'm almost excited by your problem. Like, I feel like, oh, there's so much you can play with there in terms of like how they would describe it now that they get the microphone. Yeah, I think I think it will, regardless of what the final ends up being, I think it's valuable because it's mm, giving me more information. Yeah. And these things are sort of happening. And I'm like, oh my God, I had no idea that this <laughs> happened, but it makes complete sense. Yeah. I'm just sort of letting her talk. And um, and I wrote like 30 pages last week of just like, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, okay, look at, look, to say. look at her go. Yeah. But um, one question I had that I sort of put a pin in earlier is that you've got two narrators in Woman Number 17. They're both first person and you've got a mute character, yet he never gets to talk, yes. which is really interesting. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about Seth. I, I will say I had this very interesting experience where I read this book and like two days later, I lost my voice 100%. Like I haven't lost my voice that aggressively in like 20 years. And um, and it was- I don't mean to laugh. <laughs> no, you should. It was hilarious. I mean, it was like four days and I kind of turned into Seth and I kept thinking about this. Like, And I started to use techniques in there. Like he writes little notes on his iPhone and mm-hmm. shows them to people. I started doing that to my husband- we were on vacation. It was very bizarre. But it made me think about that character and the fact that aside from the things he writes down or the way he's described by someone else, he never gets to speak himself, which I thought was a really interesting choice. Seth was the challenge of this book. So I was like, oh, I have a character with a disability. No pressure, Eden, because I definitely did not want to get it wrong. I mean, I, I'm open to the fact that I might get it wrong. I mean, that's sort of what you do when you go outside of your own experience. But I just wanted to make sure that he was both a person with a disability, like you couldn't look away from that, but he was also more than that. And I also really wanted to write about women who were like weren't really seeing him 
clearly. Like they were just putting their own shit on him and they talk and talk and talk and don't say anything, basically. Um, so I wanted to really work with that. And I felt like the only way I could feel comfortable writing about him is if I really just thought a lot about him and really felt like, he, again, he was like, the, think about his pinhole in that in this mural and make him feel like a real person. And he ultimately became my ca- favorite character because I felt like I, I just, you know, was woke up in the middle of the night worrying about him the most, you know, like who, how can I write him? And I have to say, I will never again, well, why would I write a second book like this? But writing a character who doesn't speak is so annoying because you have to be like, how many times can he shrug his shoulders or lift an eyebrow? Um, but at the same time, what was fun about that is like, how can you give a character like a kind of a strong physical presence so that he's memorable, even if he doesn't have any dialogue to work with? Um, so that was really fun to work with. So I got to like, like, I didn't make him handsome. I actually kind of made him weird looking. I got to give him like all this chest hair, but he's very clever and he seems secretive, but maybe he's not actually secretive. He just can't speak. Um, so there was a lot that I got to play with that was really fun. Yeah, I think that was... That was something I liked, too, because he is a teenager. I mean, he's almost at the end of being a teenager. Yeah, but he's a dick. But he's, <laughs> so I think that in some ways, sullen and silent is sort of a default for <laughs> how we think about teenagers. And since he's a teenager, it's it's like this is almost a teenager, but like four steps further. Yeah. Because of his not speaking. And yet he still manages to make himself heard when he wants to be. Yeah, and he really is comf- He. Of all the characters, I feel like he knows what he wants and he knows who he is. And nobody else does. Yeah, that's true. And I think that there's something about looking at characters and do they know who they are and do they Mm. not? And can we see ourselves in them? And I wonder if part of the reason why people are so hard on Lady in their reviews or comments or in other places is because you kind of have to admit things about yourself in liking that character. Like, I admit that I'm sometimes really critical of myself and others and that... I get neurotic or I don't like photographs of myself or other things, you know, that that she feels. And I think that in order to write characters that are engaging, you have to look at the parts of yourself that you don't like. I agree with that. I think, I mean, I was raised in a really permissive household where like any feeling you had was okay. And like, I think that I have less I mean, I think this is a good thing, but can get me in trouble. I have less repression than some people. And so that allows me to be like, oh, I have this really dark feeling. And I think especially when you get into motherhood, only now I feel like we're allowed to say, you know, this isn't all great. Or, you know, I have had friends who say like, you know, when my child was a baby, I worried that I would like strangle it. And that seems like the worst thought you could ever have. And I was like, oh, I had that thought too, but it didn't really bother me because I just felt like, well, every mother must have this feeling. And I think I'm, I don't, for some reason, I'm predisposed to being like, oh, I have all these thoughts that some of them are really terrible. I'm not acting on them, but I'm having them. And so I just think, oh, other people have these feelings too. But I think maybe it's scarier for other people because they didn't live in a house with a weird dad. <laughs> Now I'm thinking of your dad as like the dad and the thing where it's like, it's all okay. Yeah. I mean, he's not like that dad, but he definitely, you know, he was like a druggie into like, you know, not a druggie, like he just, you know, smoked a lot of pot. He always was like, I can't, can't wait for you to do LSD. Like your, your <laughs> mind is going to be opened and expanded and was always about like just breathing and like being who you are and like, it's a, you're going to masturbate. You should do that more. Like, just like 
put it out there, you know? But he's also highly critical, which is really interesting about other things. So that's kind of an interesting <laughs> dichotomy. But I definitely feel like, and my sisters, I feel like are the same way, where it's just like, yep, yeah, I had this thought. Yeah, other people are going to do that. Yeah, okay. Let's let's think about this more. Let's go deeper. I don't know. I think that that's something that that books really have the possibility of giving us as we read them. And it makes me think of something that Claire Massoud said on the panel that you were on, which is, um, and she was very adamant about it. And I loved it. And I'm going to botch the wording she used, of course. But that she said, I don't read books to escape or to to like kind of go on a mental vacation. That was not the wording she used. But she she's like, I, I use them to, I read them to make me think about things yeah. and things that are difficult and things that are important. And I'm kind of extrapolating on what she said. But I thought about that a lot. And I think that it's true that why you read a book is important in terms of what you hope to get out of it. But it's also that removing, I think what we have, I mean, everybody has this in different ways, but I think parts of the US, particularly the East Coast where I grew up, there was a certain amount of, it's not okay to have certain feelings. So you get this meta Mm. freak out whenever you have a feeling you think is not acceptable. You know, it's not acceptable. And then reading about other characters who are doing that in a book and you're like, oh, they didn't catch on fire and... (laughs) you know, end up in a lunatic, you know, a lunatic asylum or something or go to jail because of it. It's like, oh, I'm not crazy or by myself is incredibly cathartic, I find. I agree. I mean, what's funny about what Claire Massoud said is like, I see her point, but I also see the other point where it's like, I think I also read, I read two kinds of books and sometimes they're all one. They're, there's both books are in the same book. You know, I think there is sometimes just a pure fun of a novel and also you can escape into a book that also is cathartic in that way and that is not stupid that's kind of the goal of my books I feel like that I want to write books that are fun but deep at the same time yeah no I I certainly don't aspire to to read the way she describes reading I mean I although but I also saw her point too it wasn't as if I was like what yeah, no, I, I thought it was admirable, but it's sort of like the I wish I was that person, but I also sometimes just read like detective novels and love them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that struck that in this one is that there is tension and there is that and that you're attached to these people and you're sort of intoxicated by them doing things that we don't often feel permission or the guts to do. Yeah, and you also, it'd probably be ill-advised to do a lot of those things. Oh, yeah. And also, you know what's funny is in crime novels, you don't hear a lot about unlikable characters in crime novels, novels, like a murderer, for instance. It's almost like we withhold that judgment for people who don't go all the way, but they just do kind of nasty things. And right. I wonder, I think because maybe they're too close to our everyday experience of just bad people, not monsters, just people who are shitty. Yeah, like you don't, you also don't get a lot of like nice killers, <laughs> you know, in those books. I think it's like when you have a, a sort of, a certain expectation that comes up with the type of a book. Like if Mm -hmm. it's a defined type, like a romance book or a science fiction book, Mm -hmm. or, you know, if there's a genre convention to it, then I think you, you expect it to follow that convention rather than I think in literary novels or any other kind of fiction, even there is an expectation that you're going to care about somebody. And I think that the difference between, yeah, that's the difference I see between difficult and unlikable characters. Mm, Nobody yes. expects a killer to be likable, but the mm-hmm. more interesting ones are. Yeah. And I think about books that are, have stayed with me more in that genre are because there was something that I kind of identified with Definitely. in them. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to 
to look at that. And I don't know. I mean, I think a lot about Ben Percy talking about, you know, when you you don't only want to write genre or only write literary, mm-hmm. literary fiction, but if you bring those things together, yeah. then you get something new, which is really exciting on more levels. Agreed, agreed. And I, I think ultimately I just want people to care about my characters. You don't have to agree with what they do, but you kind of want to know what they're going to do next because you are starting to understand their trauma and their desires and their secrets. And you just, you are, you're interested. And I think if you really, uh, if you find someone truly unlikable, then you don't care at all what they're going to do. Right. Yeah. And I think that this could be a whole other episode, but (laughs) is that, and I'll just kind of wrap us up by saying that I think that, yeah, unlikable is a different thing. And I think that I found them all really likable in that their vulnerability was interesting to me. And I think that at the same time, there are cultural norms about what's considered unlikable Mm. versus what's not. And I think people are held, characters and people are held to different standards of what they're allowed to do before they're determined as unlikable. I agree. And especially for female characters and women. (laughs) Totally. So I, I think I enjoyed... I mean, I know I enjoyed seeing women taking risks and them being the defining framework of the book and really struggling with aspects of their lives that are worth struggling with. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) And I I think, um, well, I hope everybody reads the book because it's really like, it's a literary novel, but there is this quality, like you cannot put it down. You're like, oh my God, what is going to go on in this? And because it does have that thing where you're going back and forth between perspectives and it kind of drops you like, well... I think I'm going to do this. And you're like, please don't. And then it goes back to the other character. And you're like, oh my God, when is she, what is she going to do? So you can't really stop reading it. Um, so there's that element to it. But I think having listened to this conversation, I think it will give you a lot of thoughts about permission and what you can ask your characters to do mm-hmm. and, and and ways to kind of expand what they're, what they're doing in the book. Just go for it. Yeah, that's the motto. Just go for it. Well, thank you for coming over and thank hanging you. out six inches away from I me love on this. It. <laughs> thank you for doing this while sick. Oh, it's fine. I mean, I, my only concern was a couple of days ago. I was like, oh my God, if I have no voice, and what if I have to do this episode like Seth and I just have to type? I was <laughs> like, I'm going to voice. <laughs> or I was going to take um, some index cards and write questions and just hold them up and have you read oh them. Oh my God. And be like, Caroline is totally silent on this episode. Oh my God, that would have been a very special edition. It would have been real weird, but um, I was willing to go for it. But I'm really glad that we were not <laughs> required to do that version. Oh my gosh. So funny. Well, thank you for coming thank over. Thank you for having me. I love it. Yay. My second guest today is Jim Butcher, who is the author of The Dresden Files, The Codex, Alera, and the new steampunk series, The Cinder Spires. His resume includes a laundry list of skills, which were useful a couple of centuries ago, and he plays guitar quite badly. An avid gamer, he plays tabletop games in varying systems, a variety of video games on PC and console, and LARPs whenever he can make time for it. Jim currently resides mostly inside his own head, but his head can generally be found in his hometown of Independence, Missouri. Jim goes by the moniker Longshot in a number of online locales. He came by this name in the early 1990s when he decided he would become a published author. Usually only three in 1,000 who make such an attempt actually manage to become published. Of these, only one in 10 make enough money to call it a living. 
The sale of a second series was the breakthrough that let him beat the long odds against attaining a career as a novelist. All the same, he refuses to change his nickname. Um, it is such a treat to have Jim on today to talk about having a very, very elaborate world in which his stories and books are set. Um, his latest book, The Dresden Files, is a series of short stories that allowed him to explore aspects of the universe he has created with his books that he doesn't get to explore in his novels. And some of them, he says in his lively commentary before each story, he could see a path to making them a whole novel, but he doesn't know if he'll have time for it given how many other books he has in the queue to write. So talking to Jim was a great exploration of how important it is to get your characters into tricky situations. He is a big fan of having terrible things happen to his characters and relishes what it does for the plot when you make this happen. So if you, like me, sometimes have trouble pushing your characters into the deep end of a situation, I know this will prove very inspiring and encourage you to chuck your characters in the deep end and see whether they sink or swim. So with that said, here we go with Jim Butcher. Hey, Jim, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. So as Briefcase is, is coming out, one of the things that I really loved about it was your sort of setup for each story and getting the kind of backstory around what was going on for you, what was exciting for you, because you've been writing at least the Dresden Files since you were 25, correct? I mean, that's when you started working on this world. Yeah, yeah. So... I guess yeah, when I was twenty, when I was twenty-five, and 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 a lot more competent than I am now. Oh, a lot more confident. Oh, definitely. So, what's changed about that? Uh, just experience. Uh, <laughs> you know, when you when you get out there and 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 you start, you know, you start working on it and 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 start interacting with people, and you and you realize, uh, uh you know, how much there is uh, uh, to the business. And uh, I, I was considerably more competent when I was twenty-five than I am now. I think we all were. I think so. Yeah. So in putting this collection of stories together that are in some ways sort of departures or additions to the world that you've been working on, one question that came up for me, because you said in the first story that you could see it unfolding into a whole series of novels, the one with Wyatt Earp. Um, how do you decide what gets to be a book and what just stays a story and, oh, it would be nice to write that one day? Oh, that's a good question. Um, really, mostly what gets to be a book is is what is you know what I'm contracted to do next. <laughs> uh, but 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 when I'm but when I'm putting it together, um, essentially I've got to be able to have the story that I that, that I can't see the edges of the map, and that the only way I'm going to be I'm going to I'm going to find it is is to actually go there because right there right now you know the edge of the map just says here there be dragons. <laughs> uh, uh, and as soon as I say here there be drag, as soon as I see the here there be dragons, then my eyes light up because I don't know what's over there. But the only way to get there is, is to actually is to actually start writing the story and, and, and exploring that. Uh, uh, so, you know, if I can see all the way to the edges of the story, then I know it's, it's going to be good for something a little bit smaller. If it, 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 but if, if there's if it's got that expanding map opening up in my head, then it's like oh wow, okay right there that's where I need to go. That's true. I think so. What happens when you start a story and then the map the map is larger than you thought? Yeah, that that happens sometimes. Yeah, it <laughs> uh, seems like it, it, it started with the Dresden Files. And, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's still there's still more maps for that matter. There's still more map back in Alera that I could go back to and play with. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, 
yeah, I mean, it's 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 bigger than it, you know. It's sometimes it's bigger than you thought it was, and and then you've just got to figure out well, how can I how can I uh, you know explore this part of the world and still keep this you know within the bounds of the story that I'm that I'm you know contracted for at that point. Uh, but yeah, that's one of those things that you don't find out until you're already in the middle of it and you've signed your name on papers and stuff. So <laughs> absolutely. Uh, then you then you just you, you scramble as best you can. You know, you try and, and, and make sure that you're giving your reader a, a story that they'll be satisfied with at the end. Absolutely. Because you have constructed a world. One of the questions that I had also is, is having written, in particular, Dresden Files as long as you have, how do you keep track of all of the details? Because there are so many rules and constructs and hierarchies and relationships going on between characters and types of characters I have this vision of you having some giant codex in your house, but I'm wondering how you keep track of all of this information. Well, um, part of it is partly it's when I built it, I had a specific structure in mind. Um, so uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't remember. Uh, I don't necessarily remember relationships very well because that doesn't work very well. Because when you're writing, uh, when you're writing a book. By the time I've finished a novel, I've written you know between eight and eleven slightly different versions of that same novel, right. uh, and I and and details change, and I don't always remember which details made it into the final one and which got cut. Um, uh, uh, so the, the the biggest advantage I have is that when I build things, I kind of have the structure in mind when I'm building them. So I don't I, I don't need to to remember it. I can I can I can use my structure and recreate it. And say, well, this is probably how I would have built it, and, and then go check and make sure that's how I built it. So I, I was doing that, uh, like in the first half of the series or so, uh, uh, you know, and, and that worked that worked fairly well for me. And I had a couple of friends who who helped me keep track of things as well. But then the series kept expanding and kept expanding, and so I, I had to I had to find some people to work with who were like really really freakishly good at continuity. Um, uh, and, there, and there's there's folks on my beta there's 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 two or three people on my beta list who are just amazing at continuity and they will pick out things. Of course, they they they've only had one version of each book instead of like eleven, uh, so that helps them a little. But, but you know, my memory is is not actually the memory of the book. It's this cloud of of parallel realities that are almost the same but not quite. Uh, uh, so I, I'll I rely on them to help me. And then these days I can go to the fan Wikipedia. Because the fans keep much closer track of this stuff than I possibly can. Uh, so I, 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 will, I will show up on, on the Wikipedia and be like, wait a minute, how many kids do the Carpenters have again? I can't remember. Oh, okay, right. And, and, and write that down. Or which color were the Beatles, the Blue Beatles doors were which color? And, and figure that out. Uh, um, because uh, I mean, it, it, the fans have put together put together the resource, you know, to use among themselves. But you know, I'm sneaking on there and using it too. You know, I, I well, not sneaking because here I am telling you about it in an interview. But <laughs> they're gonna find out. But I'm sure they'll yeah, yeah, appreciate they'll, it. They know. They know. They're on to you. So the setting is so vivid in all of your writing that it's almost like another character. And I'm wondering how you balance that. This was a question, actually, um, a client of mine who loves your writing says, please ask him about the setting. Um, because it's neither that overwrought, you know, sometimes you read stuff and there's so much description that you're kind of strangled by it. Yet it's yeah. absolutely clear what everything looks like, what's going on. You can picture it. I'm thinking of the house where the the boggart happened. There there wasn't like a description of everything, but I loved the 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 three big-eyed 
uh, cartoon characters that were present everywhere, which I can only assume were the Powerpuff Girls. But of course, there were the Powerpuff Girls. Yeah. Okay, I just needed to confirm that. I'm so glad. Um, everyone's like, "Why are you talking about the Powerpuff Girls?" But it's important, you guys, when you read the book. So. How are you making choices or how are you visualizing the setting? Is this something that happens in version one or in version 11 where you're nailing down the details of the, of the setting? Um, it, it, the way I write is really backwards uh, uh, because when I sit down to write a, when I sit down to write a, 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 a when I sit down to write, I, I sit down to write a chapter. That is, that is my goal when I sit down to write for a writing session is I'm, I'm going to get this chapter written. Uh, uh, but the thing is, I can't write the chapter until I can see it all in my head and how it all fits together. Uh, so I just sit there for a while thinking about the chapter, and sometimes it takes, it, it, it takes a while for, for my head to assemble it. Uh, and then once I've got it, then I can just write it, and it just goes and, and goes pretty quick. And, and as far as, uh, uh, as, far as the, the balance of the setting goes, I, I, I just borrowed from Mark Twain for that one. Mark Twain says, uh, said that – I forget the exact quote, but he said that when you're writing fantasy, uh, uh, you have to present fantastic elements at the rate of uh, – you have to present fantastic elements with recognizable and familiar elements at the rate of two to one. Uh, so you know, any so, – or at the rate of one to two, uh, right. rather, to, to get the ratio correct. So that for every fantastic thing that you're writing, you need to have a couple of normal things that people know all about. Uh, uh, and doing that – when you're taking a city like Chicago and you're saying, okay, we're going to have it, we're going to, this is going to be supernatural Chicago where all these strange things are happening. So to do that, you've got to also nail down, uh, uh, nail down the familiar part of Chicago that people know about. Uh, uh, so yeah, I mean, there might be vampires running around, but the police are still there to handle it. Uh, uh, the police are still there to handle it, and uh, uh, the vampires are still going to be confounded by you know the the the, the native uh, contrariness of, of Chicago in some way, you know, or, or uh, you know whatever you're doing, you've got to give people a couple of uh, a couple of handholds to hang on to, uh, so that they trust you when they reach for that that third handhold that might or might not be something real. You know. No, that makes a lot of sense. And and the process of doing that really helps you with the setting because it makes you think about well, what's going to be valuable here? You know, what 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 does the reader need to know? What do I absolutely have to have for this story? And how do I keep the reader grounded so that it doesn't just get, go you know herring off into the into the wild blue yonder? Yeah, although you know that might be kind of fun too. Yeah, well, it it could be, but I, I think you lose I think you lose readers when you do that. Uh, True. Uh, you gotta, you know, you gotta, you gotta maintain that suspension of disbelief, and one of the ways you do that is by is by keeping that that ratio of, of familiar things to to weird things. Got it. Familiar to weird. It's important to remember. I think that's very handy. Yes, yeah, two to one familiar, a two to one familiar to weird ratio. I love it. It's like perfect for a bumper sticker. I think, <laughs> and and that leads into my next question, which is that you are using things. In your world, it is not completely elements that people have never heard of. People have heard of Bigfoot. People have heard of vampires and wizards and, and all of these kinds of creatures. Yet, there is a particular tone and flavor that has been interacted with. So it's almost as if it made me think of it reading the, the Wyatt Earp story again, that there's a, an element of historical fiction in a sense, where you're taking characters that people may have already had a relationship with, and yet you're transforming them within the world of your story, where they all kind of exist together. Well, yes, I, I, I think what genres do is, I mean, I think that's kind of the whole point of a, of a, of a genre is that you have this this fairly familiar cast somewhere in the background. Uh, it's almost like Commedia dell'arte. 
where where people knew what the characters were, and it was just a, it was a matter of of presenting the characters in in different plots and different situations uh, uh, in order to to either uh, support or subvert those expectations that people already had. Yeah, absolutely. So how how is it that you go in there and you're like, mm, this is going to be my vampire? D- does the vampire just sort of introduce themselves to you and you say, oh, okay, you're acting a little differently than I expected, sort of as the writer, or is this? Are you making choices about, you know, that Bigfoot's going to have a financial planner or or other such, you know, moments that are so great? Well, um, how are you making those decisions? Mostly, what I had what I had to do was sit down and think to myself, okay, so in in, in this world where these things actually exist, you know, how would they get along? How would they survive? Uh, uh, vampires was a uh, vampires was sort of a was sort of a different thing because that was. You know the vamp- you know the vampire fiction genre was like a big thing for 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 a good long while. Yeah. Uh, oh, and also vampires have been on the way out since like 1988. <laughs> uh, 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 you know, I mean, I've been hearing you know like editors and agents and so on say that vampires are, are vampires are dead. Uh, uh, you know, since the late 80s. Well, late they 80. they are dead though. They're the undead. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think that's what the editors and agents didn't understand. Right. Uh, it's uh, true. But everybody, but, but for a long time, the flavor was, well, my vampires are like this. Well, my vampires are like this. And so what, what I wanted to do was stop and go, you know what, I, I, think that, I, I think that humans in this world are looking at, at all these different vampire encounters, and they're sort of lumping them all together into, the, like, the Hollywood vampire. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but that in reality, there's, like, lots of different vampires that people are sort of, you know, occasionally surviving encounters with and then reporting about. And that they've sort of formed this, this you know, this gestalt, uh, this gestalt of, of of what a vampire looks like to humans. But that there's actually like like these different breeds of vampires. Uh, so I kind of broke down, you know, the vampires into like, okay, I'm going to have my sexy vampires because that's you know that, that that's good for business. And I'm going to have uh, uh, my my kind of shambling, horrible corpse vampires, uh, kind of like the original Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. And, and then I was going to have my my my, my uh, you know my my my, my lusty blood drinking vampires that that just that, that you know were essentially these drug addicts that just couldn't stop themselves. Uh, who were I? You were I think were a little more like the uh, like the vamp- like some of the vampires you see like in True Blood or something like that. Right. But. Uh, 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 but although technically I was, I think, I think me and Charlene, I think Stormfront came out the same year as, as, as her first Suki Stackhouse book. Um, uh, but anyway, the same Merck kind of con- concocting all of this. Yeah. 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 Well, and she was thinking similar to me too, where she wanted, she didn't want just a vampire world. She wanted a world where vampires and werewolves and everything else were around. Uh, uh, uh I mean, I mean, that was, I, I think Buffy the Vampire Slayer led, led the way on that one. Uh, yes. Uh, certainly, uh, it was a huge inspiration for me. But anyway, um, where were we on the question? Oh my gosh, we well, I just just taking much. taking characters that are established in the collective mindset and and having your own experience writing them and discovering who they yeah, are and, and in you, your and, world. Well, and you just got you've, you've got to take those established characters and then think to yourself, okay, but I don't want to just have standard boring character here. What are we going to do? Um, uh, 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 or, or, you know, I, I don't want to have just the what people are expecting. Uh, uh, so yeah, you've got to find ways to, to to say, okay, well, this makes sense, and it would work in a it would work in a in a you know in a, in a world, you know, the where's the vampire is what's the ecological niche of this kind of vampire? You know, where do they do their where do they do their hunting? Where do they do their business? Uh, uh, and, and you just got to stop and, and think through those sorts of things and th- and think to yourself, well, how would that work? 
and, and it and it and it takes time. I mean, you you just gotta you you've gotta you've gotta stop and and think about things. I mean, I I got a lot of my inspiration from watching Animal Planet. You're all putting together my my supernatural world because it's like, okay, well, these are supernatural predators. So how are they going to behave? Well, how do predators behave in the real world? And and you take a look at at, at how predators actually behave and you see why vampires don't rule the world, you know, because that's not how predators act. You know, in in the real world, if a predator is going after prey and they don't think it's an absolutely sure thing, they they will often pass it up because, you know, the the least injury to, uh, to a predator can result in, uh, them not being able to hunt ever again uh, and starving to death. So, uh, you know, predators don't tend to go after things that can fight back real hard unless it's a really good situation. And uh, uh, so in the Dreads and Files world, I knew uh, I was setting people up as well. You know, people aren't just these, these helpless victims, you, especially when you get them together in large groups. They're very dangerous and scary. Uh, um, uh, so, you know, the, so the predators have to be cautious or, or, or you know, if they, if, they, if they get too far out in the open, the humans will do something about it. Absolutely. Well, I think that seems to be a theme throughout briefcases as well in looking at Bigfoot's son having a bullying issue and a boggart in a closet and, and things about who is preying on whom. Was that a theme you were consciously thinking about? I mean, it seems like it's a theme you're consciously thinking about in general. Oh, I, I don't I don't consciously think about themes. I, I don't I don't worry about themes. I write my story and I, I let the theme come out of the story itself. Mm-hmm. Um uh, uh, I, I mean, I don't know what I often don't know what the theme of a story is going to be until I'm until I've finished writing it, and then I look back at it and go, "Oh, yeah, this one was about friendship," you know, like that. Nice. But 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 but, but my conscious process while I was writing it was completely divorced from that. Uh, uh, while while I'm writing the book, what I'm thinking about is, you know, I'm thinking about pace, I'm thinking about character, I'm thinking about plot. I'm concentrating on making sure the conflict stays high and the, and the stakes stay high and the tension stays high. I don't worry about the, 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 the thematic writing. Um, that is something that I think that the process of writing the story sort of tells you what you think. Uh, uh, because when you get back and, and you stop and you look back at the story and you go, yeah, well, that is kind of what I think about the world uh, oftentimes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, but it's not something that I it's not something that I want to put in there. It's not something that I want to you know I want to harp on on the reader. I just want to write the story. You know, you ne- you never you, yeah, I know there's a lot of people that think that, they, that that that's what you should be doing with writing that you should be you sh- you should be uh, uh, putting those themes into the writing. You should be you should be challenging people's ideas and so on. Uh but I think it's it's a really slippery slope because you should never you should never preach harder than you enter, than you can entertain. And so what I do is try and stay focused on the entertainment and some other stuff comes out fantastic. And if not, you know, we'll still have a fun ride. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's true, is that the theme is probably discovered through the process much more so. You don't want to be up on a soapbox saying, this is what I am trying to say, because then... Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Those tend to come out like infomercials. Yeah, that's, that's the fastest way to make people go, eh, I don't need this. I get this every Sunday at church, you know? Right, exactly. I'm wondering if you could say just a little bit about structure, because you mentioned structure when we were first speaking about how you work with the structure and then you know this is how I built it and this is how I would have built it in order to hold sort of the way everything progresses together. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about your relationship to structure. I believe very strongly in structure as, as the foundation of, of, of your writing. Um, I, 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 am, I am not a – how to phrase this? I don't want to say I'm not a pantser because I, I often write things that I didn't know was, that was going to happen until it happened. But um, 
but this, but but even when, even when I'm writing these things that I didn't know were going to happen, they still have to fit within the, the general structure of of a scene, the general structure of a story. You know, when you're writing a scene, you've got to have uh, your character's got to have a goal. You've got to have somebody who's trying to get in the way of that goal, and then the scene is about that conflict between the two characters. And at the end of it, it needs to turn out badly for your for 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 your protagonist uh, <laughs> in that scene. Uh, I mean, because it, it's boring if anything else happens. I've often said that there's. Or you know, my, my my writing teacher always taught us that that, that there's uh, uh, there's there's four ways to end a scene uh, because when you're you're the implicit question of any scene is is the character going to get the goal he's going after, and it, it, if you say well you, is the character going to get the goal and the answer is yes it's like okay well he got his goal but that's sort of boring, uh, 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 so you know the, the 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 next best one is to is to say yes but it's like yes he gets his goal but there's some further complication that ruins his, that, that is going to make things bad, worse down the line you can say no where the character just just flat out fails uh, uh, and, and that happens to Harry quite a bit uh, and that's when you've got to back he, when he's got to back off and, and reassess what he's doing and, and try a different angle uh, uh, but the very best way to end a scene is with not only no, but no, and furthermore, it gets worse. <laughs> and that is my favorite ending to any scene, uh, is not only does he not get whatever he's doing, but something has happened to make things worse in his life. And, and once you get used to writing those, those no, no and furthermore scenes, the story just complicates itself for you. I mean, you, it really it does. Just being able to, to do that does so much of the work for you as a writer. Uh, 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 I mean, you do kind of run the risk of getting your character in further and further and further over his head, uh, uh, but I think that's part of the fun. Uh, uh, you know, the, the creativity comes in when you're trying to get the character out again, uh, right. but the structure uh, helps you build that story and keep that tension, because as your, your character keeps pursuing things and being frustrated and things getting worse, uh, uh, you know, that's more and more tension building up and more and more people being in trouble. And, and, and you know, especially if you've got a character who cares about others, uh, uh, you know, more people getting involved in, in whatever horrible mess he's happened to be to wander into this week. Perfect. Yeah. And then you have to pull them out. So I think that maybe that's a, a hybrid plotting pantsing situation. Where you've uh, got yeah, a general be. premise, and then you're like, but it's just going to keep getting worse until we have to pull them out of it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's going to it's going to keep getting worse until we get to the big finale, and uh, and and we will resolve. We'll have to resolve things in the finale somehow. And and that part is structure. It's like that. That is this is the shape of the story. Uh, uh, but figuring out the actual details. Um, uh, outlining helps. Uh, outlining often helps get you past sticky points in the in the in the plot. I find. Um, but you should never ignore your instincts when your instincts tell you, oh, wait, I can make it worse for him by doing this. Um, <laughs> if, your instinct, if your instincts tell you to make things better for your character, they're wrong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nice. But if, but if their instincts are telling you to give you a, a new way to torture your character, that's perfect. That, that, that's the instinct you should follow. Excellent. These are our bumper stickers. Your instincts should tell you to torture and two to one on normal to weird yeah there you go well thank you so much for coming to talk to us and i know that everyone is going to be happily plotting out their normal to weird ratios and throwing their characters with glee into more and more horrible situations at, at your excellent that, advice that's how it's done man I, I i hope lots of people start doing that those are good stories i love to read those stories well hopefully they'll be coming your way soon and um congratulations on briefcases thank you so much thank you Thank you very much.
Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.